This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the choice of today's creative generation. Small HD, real-time confidence for creatives. Hi, everyone. This is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And I am here recording another podcast roundtable with the team on the ground here at Sundance 2020. Let's go around the table and, and quickly reintroduce everybody. I'm Oakley. I'm a writer at No Film School here on the ground with the team. I am Emily, and I have worked for No Film School before, and I am back <laughs> <laughs> working again, um, doing Sundance, and very happy about it. You can't quit us. <laughs> I'm it's Ryan Koo, and I am, I am No Film School. <laughs> <laughs> We're here, we're still seeing all kinds of stuff, meeting people, talking about things, and I feel like everybody's had a really busy couple days since we last checked in, and I just kind of, I've heard from each of you anecdotally about some amazing things you've seen and, and some serious emotions that have, ha- that have come through. Let's be honest, it's been an emotional stretch since we recorded this podcast, maybe more for some than others, but we literally finished recording our last Sundance podcast when Ryan announced to us the news that Kobe Bryant died um, tragically with his daughter and others, and I, for one, was deeply affected and shocked. And we went right from there to an ESPN party, which we weren't even sure would be held. And the mood was surreal, I would say. Um, And uh, it's hard for me as an Angelino not to have been in Los Angeles during this. The city is, I I can't compare the impact of this, the way I'm seeing it in the media, in my feeds, in texting. It's just been bizarre. But that's not what we're here to podcast about. I do wonder if it seeped into some of the emotions that have been coming through and some of the films and some of the experiences people have been having. So I just want to open it up because I know you guys have seen some things that really touched you. Maybe it has nothing to do with with the external events, but I'll go right to Emily because I know you have a story like that and what you've seen. And then let's just talk about our festival analysis in general, but let's start with what we've seen that's really impacted us since the last time we spoke. So I saw The Father. Um, It is a Sony Pictures Classics film, um, and it stars Anthony Hopkins as an elderly man who is suffering from dementia. So the the father was written and directed by Florian Zeller based on his really critically acclaimed play that has been across the world playing for about seven years. Um, we're going to interview him tomorrow, so I'm really excited about that, and you can check it out on the site um, it, within the next week or so. Um, so the film is extremely devastating um for anyone who's worried about having to take care of their parents as they grow old or growing old themselves so basically any person on in this on this planet um who has a heart (laughs) it is (laughs) it is uh really horrifying it puts you directly in the epicenter of um the subjectivity of anthony hopkins character as he experiences dementia so the whole narrative is built around making you feel just as confused and just as, um, you know, angry and stubborn and attached to his apartment as you what it looks like to see a, a loved one suffer from dementia from the outside. Um, they do that by writing different time loops into the script. So things are constantly changing. 
sets are changing actors are changing he doesn't recognize his daughter because she's suddenly a new actress suddenly details of her life are different and uh, her husband is played by you know a different actor and then oh she's been divorced for 15 years um you know facts of of the existence and his reality are are flipping constantly um and you you know what's really cool about that real quick is that we talk a lot to people we've talked to programmers and we talk to people about what Sundance looks for and they often talk about perspective and I think it's interesting to hear that the movie was made from the perspective of the person who's suffering because I saw a movie also that was made the, the, the structure of the movie, this, the cinematic language was affected by the perspective of the character who was suffering from, you know, a descent into, into a psychological, like, uh, uh, bipolar or something extreme. And I think that was Horse Girl. And I think that that's an interesting way to tell a story. And I think that Sundance highlighting things like that and creating an emotional experience is part of what, what a festival like Sundance is supposed to do, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, it was a really strong film and it's going to do really well. And, um, I think it's, I, I compared it to Michael Haneke's, um, Amour because it is similar in the emotional effect and it's sort of, uh, thematically similar too, but, um, it's much more creatively affecting than even that movie. Yeah. You know, sometimes it takes a little bit at Sundance to find, the great films, and I think when we we recorded our first couple, it was such a madhouse that it, you know the first time I had seen one movie, and the second time we talked a lot about the industry and, and yeah. the festival. And not everything has screened at that point either. Right, exactly. And I, I still have movies to see, but but uh, I've seen sixteen movies now in three or four days, and you win. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and none of those were screeners. Those are all like you got to go somewhere and, and get into the theater, and I've seen some remarkable remarkable films i mean some of the best movies i've ever seen have been here and so at first it's like oh why is this movie at sundance because you might just go to one movie and it, yes. you know, it, it disappoints you um and since then out of the the 16 you know five maybe have just blown me away uh so as we record this the sundance awards have not been announced and so on and so forth you know i, I guess some news about acquisition prices have started to, to trickle in but i really want to focus on some brilliant films that are here which which inspire you as a filmmaker because you know they're so imaginative and they're so emotional that it makes you um, realize what's possible and also just for the festival to put a spotlight on something like these great films where it's it's at the Eccles and there's 1200 people and it's sold out and it's not even the premiere you know like that's yeah that's an amazing feeling and it's an amazing way to experience great films uh the I do want to I want to focus on uh, I want to focus on the Asians, my people. <laughs> shout out I did to, not know where that was going. Shout out to, <laughs> shout out to the Asians. Uh, there are some movies here that I haven't had a chance to see, which are either you know written or directed or starring um, Asian Americans or Asian Canadians or any any kind of Asians. But uh, there are two films that I saw in the last couple of days, which I think are some of the strongest at the festival. Um, you know, maybe I'm playing favorites, but uh, <laughs> the f I just came from Minari, and you're going to hear about this movie for the rest of the year. It's going to win awards. Uh, it's going to win awards here at Sundance. It's one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had watching a movie. No way. And um, it's so good. So it's, it's written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung. It's about his experience growing up um, in rural Arkansas as a, as a Korean 
in the 80s, and it stars uh, Stephen Young, and um, I think both the, I don't have it in front of me, but the, the actor playing the young son and the actress playing the grandmother should both win supporting Oscars. I will say that right now. Um, How young is that son? The kid is like, I have no idea. He's like five years old. Oh, my God. And there's just like lingering close-ups of him. You know, it's not like, oh, we got to cut this performance together. Like, he's so he's so good. Also, everyone knows Asian babies are the cutest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Unequivocally. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wait, also, th- that's controversial? I don't know. Also, no, I, I, when I was in Japan with my boyfriend, I kept saying that. And he was like, Emily, what are you going to do if you don't have Asian babies? <laughs> ha. There's I mean, a joke. Adopt. There's, there's a joke in my feature, actually, in the very first scene. And somebody says, oh, you're like one of those cute little Asian babies all grown up. <laughs> it's a good line. All grown up, though. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so Minari, you know, keep tabs on that one. Unfortunately, we don't have an interview coming, but we'll try to do one when the film is coming out. Um, they shut me down. <laughs> um, it's A24, though, right? Yeah, yeah. A24 has been doing that. They, they, they also know when they have an ace card, and, and yes. like, if it's not going to come out for many months, because it's an no ace play. Ooh. <laughs> I'm so bad. Ooh. That's becoming Ooh. my thing. Those jokes. That would be a, that would, dad jokes. Oh, that, shit. You are dad. It happened. <laughs> that would be a bust, though, right? Because you're trying to get to 21. Yeah, yes. The, over. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, so Minari, and then the other one I, I will highlight is Nine Days, which is written and directed by Edson Oda. It's, it's not a film about uh, any particular specifically Asian issue, but it, it, uh, the premise is so conceptually brilliant. It is about souls interviewing for the chance to be born. And it's absolutely uh, universal in its depiction of, of what it is to be human and what it is to live and, and uh, have the opportunity to experience things or, or to have that taken away from you. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty starry cast. It has Winston Duke from Us and Zazie Beetz and Bill Skarsgård, who you might recognize as It, and Benedict Wong, who most recently most people know from uh, the Avengers series. Um, the performances are amazing. It's uh, a Sundance Labs project. And it's one. It's gonna. It's one of the most uh, ostentatious debuts. I mean, you're gonna make a movie about souls interviewing to have High a chance concept. to be alive, <laughs> and, and it's gonna be set uh, in the, the the salt flats of, of Utah. And um, the the point of view of living people is depicted as VHS tapes on, you know, vintage televisions. I mean, it's really. Uh, it's the kind of movie where you feel like a festival to celebrate the arts. This is the kind of thing that should be here. And I got a standing ovation. I was at the premiere. Uh, so I think Minari and Nine Days are going to be two movies to, to keep your eyes there's out a, for. It's funny. There's like a subgenre of movies about like <clears throat> not just the afterlife, but like the souls when they're not in bodies. The purgatory. Yeah. Or like, and it's not always in the pejorative purgatory sense, but um, I'm blanking on some of the names, but there's one that's been remade a couple times and Warren Beatty was in the 70s version there's uh, the, the Albert, good place. <laughs> there's the Albert Brooks movie. There's also the good with Meryl Streep. There's also the good place. There's also here comes Mr. Jordan, which I think is Cary Grant. Anyway, there is an interesting subgenre. It'd be interesting to do a study on that. But anyway, <laughs> I think I think a lot of those movies, though, traditionally you've had sort of high concept Hollywood movies that explore that type of thing. And I, what I want to point out about Minari and Nine Days, and what's maybe different about them, is how personal they are. Yeah, uh, the writer. Director Edson Oda talked about for nine days what inspired him was his uncle committing suicide. And with Minari, Lee Isaac Chung, he lived that life growing up in this rural place where, where they were, you know, uh, they stuck, stuck out like sore thumbs as the only Asians um, 
And as as an Asian who grew up in the South myself, <laughs> I was gonna maybe say, I'm biased. I was going to say. <laughs> I might be biased, but I don't think I am. Well, no, it I sounds heard... like it's a good movie that's doing well, so it's not just like you're like coming out of left field with this thing you found. Like, hey, it's my story, and it's amazing. <laughs> no, I heard Minari was incredible. But what, interestingly, there's been um, this, I feel like this happens in general, but at this Sundance, this has been happening more anecdotally to me than it has in the past. And let me know if you guys agree. Um there are people who have completely bipolar, radically different experiences of movies. Like Nine Days is getting very mixed reviews. People either love it or hate it. And I was in the middle of a conversation with people duking it out about Nine Days. I also had that experience with The Knower and I hated it. And I saw it with other people that loved it. And we just were like, did we just have the same experience? Were we in the same dimension watching that movie? <laughs> I heard I heard some like not negative but i heard some meh kind of things about nine days interesting to hear ryan talk about it because the way ryan describes it it sounds like it's extremely interesting from a construction standpoint just from the pieces that are put together so i think what often happens with the movie that uh checks all the boxes for the most of its runtime right like where you're on board with it it's successfully suspending disbelief you're you're into the performances if there's a ending uh, that people are polarized mm, over. Often a movie that it. you loved up until that point, if you didn't like the ending, then all of a sudden you're like, this is the worst thing ever, when really the fact that you're that passionate about mm. it is still a compliment to the film. And, and I do think people seem to react differently to the ending of the film. Uh, obviously, if you're up until the 80% mark, you're so wholly captivated by this thing. It's still an incredible movie, and it's, it's just not going to be for everybody. I think yeah. also before you go, Oakley, I think it's worth pointing out that movies that polarize belong at festivals because we want to see things that touch us it's about perspective and pov and something that can connect with somebody uniquely but they can also maybe miss somebody or that they can at least be i didn't get it or i don't get why because that's kind of what art is like we're not going to necessarily see that in the multiplex because they're trying to hit more people so when we come to a festival what we hope to experience is something that's a little more targeted and that is a little more unique and maybe messy and not quite right on the money which i think for our our listeners and for filmmakers who read no film school that's like that's if that's what you want to do, if you want to have a voice and you want to say something specific and you think it might not fit all the boxes, like that's the purpose here, at least or in some festivals. I completely agree with that. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of uh, films where audience members are taking away completely different things from the screening, George and I had a chance to see Downhill. We did. Which is a remake of the 2014 film Force Majeure which I was really excited to see, and I am really excited to see what people think about it. Um, one thing that we said going into it is, how could you possibly remake a film so good? And it is sort of an impossible task. And so um, watching Downhill was like a complete like mixed uh, <laughs> bag. And I think um, it's definitely one of those ones where the people who loved Force Majeure in the audience were like, no, it's not the force majeure I love, <laughs> which it just isn't. It, it's it, in a lot of different ways. Um, and then the rest of the audience, we were like, well, what do people think that haven't seen it? And so I had a chance to talk to a woman who, had, who just randomly on her own accord brought up, I just saw Downhill. It was great. I loved it. And I was like, oh, you know, did you ever see force majeure? And she didn't know right. that it had been a remake. Right. Um, yeah, sometimes. So my anecdote with that is always The Departed and Infernal Affairs, because Infernal Affairs was this amazing uh, foreign film. 
that was innovative and cool and unique and like everybody who saw it was like oh my god this thing's amazing and plan b i guess got a hold of it and <clears throat> of course it was remade as the departed so a lot of people saw the departed which is a an oscar-winning movie with huge stars and martin scorsese and don't know that it's based on this also very good movie um it's hard to do that but they definitely pulled it off because they put they all put their own print on it i don't know with downhill um I, I think that was kind of it was it was that right that's kind of the attempt a lot there of there was just no way for me to watch it without right. <laughs> thinking about force majeure so for me it was just a total warped experience um, <laughs> you know just because you're thinking about the other film and I'd even watched it recently so I really had it on the top of my brain but you know we I was able to sit down with Nat Faxon and Jim Rash and they did talk about like why they made it and it turns out Julia Louis Dreyfus it was kind of she was kind of pushing that which is kind of interesting because without giving too much away, the one significant difference other than the story being told from like an American cultural perspective being in Austria, you do get to see a lot more from the wife, Billy's perspective, which was something that did not exist see, in Force that, Majeure. And what that, I feel good about that because that was sort of my guess, was I thought she's a producer and maybe she wanted to tell this story but to inject it with more perspective from the more of the woman's perspective and make her more of a lead and it they did do that I think effectively and those are probably some of the funniest parts those original yeah. things where you got to see her character doing some pretty unusual and funny and edgy things in this um, otherwise familiar yeah. um, script and storyline so you know you you know, go to nofilmschool.com and check out the the print interview for that one. They they talk a little bit more about their process, but that was an interesting one for sure in terms of audiences taking away completely different things from the movie. Yeah, I mean, so I saw there's two that I would talk about. Um, one was Horse Girl, which I mentioned because it was another example of even though that's a Netflix movie. You're gonna see it if you want. It'll be out soon, um, like very soon, I think. <laughs> but uh, it it um, it's about mental health. It's about like mental illness. And if you've been close to or experienced mental illness or you've known somebody who's gone through it and their reality has started to fracture and you can only see it from the outside, it feels a certain way. Um, the, it's trying, they tried to bring us into the inside of it a little bit, which is a little bit of a horror film in a way. And also just, I mean, there's comedic elements. It has a lot of comedic, it has Alison Brie. It has uh, Molly Shannon, but it it's dark and disturbing, and I think that it's an example of an, another example of where Sundance is looking to give audiences an experience they're not used to having, to opening up an experience that is not as familiar um, to them through cinema. <laughs> so it's like we, you know, it's I haven't seen it done that way before, and it did remind me of people I've known who suffered with mental health issues in a pretty dramatic and horrific way. So that was interesting. I think it's called Dream Horse. No, oh, there's, there's also two. so there's Dream Horse oh, and there's, there's Horse Girl. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like George. <laughs> I know Horse Girl is a title where you're like, really? Like it's, a, yeah. it's called Horse Girl. I hope. No, it really is. Because I heard Dream Horse was bad, so I was like, I, oh, interesting. I saw Dream Horse. Um, I don't. <laughs> I saw both horse movies. I'm the I'm the equine. Uh, I, Dr Dr <laughs> You're going to get so many emails about covering horse films from now on. That's another subgenre we could talk about. I, Dream Horse, a whole other story. Um, I also wanted to talk about The Last Shift, which is a movie. Ryan spoke with the filmmaker, Andrew Cohen, 
And we're going to have that interview up on the podcast. And I highly encourage everyone to listen to it because I think that this movie and this filmmaker are really exciting. I think this movie does something that I personally want to see when I go to movies. It's about an extremely important, timely issue and issues, but it's narrative driven. It's not preachy. It doesn't offer answers, but it really does a good job showing you sides of a problem we're all becoming extremely familiar with, which has to do with race and class in small town America and middle America and the way those things interact between two guys who are working at a fast food place together. And then like that, it, and it, that sounds like a lot, but it pulls it off in a really measured, straightforward way that makes it about characters and people. And it's honestly, it's bold because it touches on stuff that's like really touchy right now. Um, nerve wise. And, and what, for example, um, hate crimes, um, racism, <laughs> um, how, so the idea, I think, that at, at the kernel of it that I felt like, wow, that's kind of like a hot thing to touch right now is um, kind of like it's not – so the the idea of the white working class voter, the forgotten man, that came became a big issue in the 2016 election, I feel like. And the idea that maybe liberalism was leaving behind the white person who also suffers and focusing only on the person of color – and I think that is a really um, complicated thing to get into and to try and present narrative-wise without being taking sides. I really think it, it manages to pull it off because, um, you know, it, it, this is also about poverty in a way. It's about a really a forgotten part of the country and the people there who still try to make a living and it's struggling and and there's also so there's it's a two-hander as we say in the screenwriting world and that or the movie world that it's a two protagonists really with mirrored arcs and one is a young african-american man who's dealing with coming out of jail and he's he's not he is intelligent he's a writer he's like and then it's dealing with an older white man who's retiring and they're kind of crossing over in the same job they're taking turns very interesting it's it's and it touches and they they it's weird they start off closer than you would think but as as you go deeper they start to run into i want ryan to talk about because he talked to the director i'm talking about it just out of my ass but like, <laughs> but like but hey i think i know a few things about yeah. what makes movies good no i i think i think george is absolutely right i would agree with all those touch points and you know the fact that it navigates this gray area is what makes uh you know it's what makes movies great because you can have empathy for a character who's making mistakes or is in the wrong and um I think one of the common things we've seen among the movies we're talking about is that a lot of them are coming from personal places, uh, either ge geographically where a filmmaker is from somewhere so they know it, or dealing with mental illness or dealing with um, you know, the death of a loved one. Uh, so The Last Shift, Andrew Cohn is from the Midwest, yeah. and uh, he's done a lot of documentaries, and I've known him for a while, and this was his first uh, narrative, and he's just you know an independent filmmaker who wrote a lot of drafts, was trying to get his movie made. Uh, cold emailed Alexander Payne's assistant, Alexander Payne, who did Election in Nebraska and so many uh, amazing films. And, uh, you know, didn't get a response. Was just trying to get his movie made. And then three months later, the phone rings and Alexander Payne says, hey, I'd like to direct your movie. The script <laughs> is great. So it's a really great story. And uh, ultimately, Alexander Payne was busy making other movies. So he supported Andrew uh, with identifying producers and, putting them together and then those producers um you know 
they elevate your script to something that's going to be real when producers like Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa come on board to make your film. So all of a sudden, he's got Academy Award nominee Richard Jenkins in who's the lead am- role. Who's amazing. He's and, incredible. And, and, and I want to say real quick, please also, this is part of why I thought that the producer's roundtable was so important. If you're listening and you're a no film school reader or something, there's so much value to get from getting the right producers if your idea is there. And I think Ryan sort of just highlighted because like this movie is – um, it's it's really well made visually for a first time director. It's just, it's well lit and it's unique looking, I thought. Um, and it's yeah, it's got Alexander Payne in its DNA for sure. So it makes sense. But and look out for that podcast because it's um, there's a lot of really valuable tips. They only shot it in 20 days, so the fact that it's so intentional and the fact that everything looks you know, the blocking and the staging and the framing and everything is is so intentional is a testament to. Um, you know, what I, what I heard a lot from Andrew was just how open he was to listening. And sometimes I think as a first time director, you can say, I know what I'm doing, you know, get off my back. (laughs) And, um, he was really open to asking people questions. I mean, he called me beforehand and said, you know, what, what can go wrong? And I remember thinking like everything, um, did you, you give him script notes? No, I mean, I read a draft, but his, he did so many drafts. He, the script was so good. It was one of those things where someone sends you a script and you're like, Oh, this is gonna be something. Um, so yeah, look out for that Come podcast. On, take some crit. I, I don't, I don't know when. <laughs> I said, "Hey, right. you should get Richard Jenkins." <laughs> no, I, I have nothing to do with it whatsoever. But uh, I'm not sure when that podcast will run. But look out for it because we always also it, it's also great to see somebody make the leap, not leap, because you know it's not like one is better than the other, but to transition from documentary to narrative. And he talks a lot about how being a documentary filmmaker, how helpful it was for him. Uh, as a first-time narrative director, how much experience he had and how much he could bring to it, having done so many documentaries. I've heard that so much. Yeah. In this, particularly at this year? No, in general, just talking to filmmakers. Um, And I think you can tell when someone's been a documentary filmmaker because they understand people's nuances. (laughs) I was going to say, it actually makes sense, (laughs) thinking about the movie now, the way it was shot and the coverage and some of the, like, yeah. Yeah. And the attention to people's behavior and sort of like the anthropological aspect of filmmaking where we're all just studying each other because humans are so weird and interesting. <laughs> Oakley's nodding as a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> well, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, you know, now that I've completely figured out documentary. <laughs> uh, no, I'm trying to translate what I've learned into narrative and it's also kind of like you feel like you're not prepared because you've spent a lot of time learning this one specific type of filmmaking, but also there's all these lessons that you have that the people who haven't gone through what you have just can't even understand. So hopefully, hopefully, that's something that I might try experimenting. So you- I got to check out this podcast, see how I can translate that and figure that out for You myself. should check out the movie. Yeah. I want to. This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the Australian pro-audio powerhouse making incredible gear for podcasters, vloggers, filmmakers, and musicians. Rode is at the vanguard of innovation for audio solutions for podcasters, offering groundbreaking products like the Rodecaster Pro, the world's first fully integrated podcast production studio, and PodMic, the ultimate podcasting microphone. Find out more about how Rode can help you cut through the noise at rode.com slash podcasting. That's R-O-D-E dot com forward slash podcasting. This podcast was recorded using Rode microphones and technology. Founded by a group of independent filmmakers, SmallHD has been innovating the on-camera and production monitor industry for an entire decade. It started by creating the first ever HD monitor that could sit on top of a DSLR. 
Today, its products include the 703 Bolt that has an integrated wireless receiver and a daylight viewable screen. Small HD is in the business of providing real-time confidence for creatives. With an extremely wide range of field monitors, Small HD prides itself on durability and usability. Whether it's paired with a mirrorless camera during a wedding or used for Video Village in Hollywood, Small HD has a monitor for every production. Powerful software tools, a unified user experience, and premium display quality help make Small HD monitors the industry standard. Stop wondering if you've nailed the shot. Start having more confidence at the camera with Small HD. On camera and production monitors starting at just $299. For more information about Small HD products, go to smallhd.com. What has everyone, like, I feel like we sort of started talking about visuals there, but I'm curious because this is no film school and a lot of our people, our community loves visuals. What have been the visual kind of standouts? Cause I, and I ask partly because I'm curious because I haven't seen a ton of stuff. I certainly haven't seen 16 movies, but I haven't seen enough to really say like, Oh, well, cause I did come out of um, the last shift there were certain scenes where they did in low light that I, and like some really shallow depth of field that like was my taste visually that I was like oh I love that look but like I'm curious what people saw that that grabbed them from a well visual just to, to piggyback on the documentary conversation um, I saw a doc that was exquisitely shot it's called the truffle hunters and it actually just got bought by sony pictures classics um i did the interview today and it was two co-directors who said that they shot one shot per day and that was because <laughs> i know ryan just fell out of his chair <laughs> no it's a documentary but you As know michael still, Dweck was one of the co-directors still. right yes i remember he who? did the last race mm-hmm. which we covered a couple years ago uh, exactly okay. look for that one some real specific visual archives. style from the beginning the reason why they were able to do that which i'll get into in the interview itself is because they had spent so much time in this tiny remote very predictable town in italy and they knew the rhythms of it so well they knew their characters what they did every day what you know Hunt what truffles yeah they're <laughs> truffle hunters it's like this it, this ancient profession um for this extremely expensive alba truffle um, that can only be found it only grows in italy and you can't manufacture its growth anywhere else wow anyway their um their visual approach was incredible because they everything was locked down it was all static shots um and it was so brilliantly composed and every location that they went to looked like it had been art directed to perfection but really it was just these incredible people's lives and um they 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 just had an eye for it they knew what to look for and how to frame their characters that reminds me after this i do want to talk about production design and art direction in sundance a little bit because i had a thought that i want to bounce out there but go let's keep talking yeah i think visually i want to talk about some movies that i think are also fantastic films because uh, you know visuals alone no one goes to the movie theater to watch pretty cinematography for two hours you'll be bored pretty quickly but um so zola is Janitza Bravo's film uh, based on 144 tweets, uh, but it, it really effectively bottles the internet on screen in a movie theater. Uh, and it's not just a matter of putting phone graphics and having sound effects from from um, f- you know from Twitter and, and that kind of thing on there. It's it's a it's a Florida set, or at least they get to Florida at a certain point. Uh, road movie, and it's just hyperkinetic. And uh, the colors and the characters and the costume design, like everything jumps off the screen, the way it's edited. It's just a really, uh, it's a visual treat and it manages to sustain this kind of um, 
momentum that it starts off at a breakneck pace and then basically goes until the end and, and you're always left wondering what's happening next. That was the experience of reading the Twitter thread too, which I think is awesome. Yeah, so a programmer um, off the record I was talking to here and sh- we were talking about how people are depicting stuff on our phones in movies because it's becoming so much of how we spend our you days. You were just talking offline. This isn't like <laughs> top secret <laughs> yeah, off the no, record no, no, stuff. No. I'm just saying that because it's not – I said that because it's not an interview that I can now also plug for people to find elsewhere on No Film School's <laughs> platform. But maybe I'll talk to her later uh, somewhere on No Film School. But the point being that she was talking about how Zola really – goes for it in terms of you know we've seen it done so many ways and it doesn't always work right (laughs) like it doesn't always recreate the experience we have but it sounds like this time it did absolutely uh another film that i will mention and i think oakley saw it is the mountains are a dream that called me yes which is a Jackie hybrid mentory narrative and we do have an interview coming with the filmmaker on it he can kind of elaborate a little on there we go dogma but yeah more Asian, more Asian love here. Uh, it's it's set in <laughs> the Annapurna cool Mountains. He he's a chief lighting technician on all these fantastic films, and this is his first feature. I did not know that. Uh, I hope that's in the piece. Oh yeah, yeah that is. Yeah. So this was in the next section, I believe, which yeah. is you know sort of usually lower budget, formerly adventurous, sometimes youthful films. This was kind of a documentary but not really it just it, i don't know go see it it's um <laughs> it's something to see in the theater because the the rhythms of the film it, it sort of transfixes you and it uses visuals a lot i mean obviously if you're in the annapurna mountains it's just a uh, it's like a, a moving postcard and it's something to see in a theater because if you put that on at home in the living room on netflix seven seconds into it, you're going to be like, oh, what was that thing on my phone that I was doing? So, you know, <laughs> movies, you really have to give yourself over to them, some more than others. And this is a movie where it's somebody hiking and there's a lot of sound design and, and um, just just a lot of ideas visually in it that I, I found really appealing. I'm going to go through some more quickly because then I have to run. Uh, Possessor is David Cronenberg's son, Brandon Cronenberg's film that visually... Fantastic visually. Yeah. I, uh, you know, <laughs> well, was, production design, maybe. Yes. It was one of those things where it was like a midnight screening, and I was like, am I, am I just really tired? Or you can't, you know, I, I wasn't like fully engaged with everything. I thought the performances are great. The production design is incredible. Mm-hmm. There are big ideas in the film. Um, and certainly, it, if you remove the first name of the director, you could still say, oh, this is a Cronenberg film. I mean, there's oh, some yeah. of the same cloth at work there with what uh, he's interested in. I interviewed him. Nice. Yeah. Is that a written piece or a podcast? Let written, the readers and I will put it up soon. <laughs> Wendy is Ben Zeitlin's new film after seven or eight years in production. Uh, it's it's very – his first film was, you know, obviously a breakout, Beast of the Southern Wild. Wendy is also a similar aesthetic, and it's kids, and it's, you know, magical realism, and it's, it's retelling the tale of Peter Pan from – Wendy's perspective and it's really interesting I'm curious how it does out in the world but uh you know these kids swimming to an island there are it's, it's very visual there are things where you just go how do they do that like was that safe <laughs> you know these kids are in like crashing waves and jumping off of things and uh the visuals of that are also amazing and I also want to talk about uh mention Charm City Kings which is 
it's not really based on there was a documentary called 12 o'clock boys about the uh, uh motorcyclists in baltimore who would uh, Lofty Nathan directed it, and this movie They're is turning it into a narrative. This is the narrative. This is the narrative. <laughs> oh my god, I'm just finding this out now. <laughs> but it's not based on, like, it's based on that world, but the story is the characters they've created. Uh, I know Barry Jenkins did a draft of the script, and then Overbrook Entertainment, Will Smith's company, produced it, and it's got some uh, fantastic performances. The cinematography is amazing. You go in thinking this is going to be an independent film, and then you realize, oh, it was like a big production company because we're doing like a car chase sequence uh-huh. through the streets of Baltimore yeah. with bikes and police cars Ooh. and things are crashing. And cool. But it but it's very very visual, um, and yeah, I guess that's it because I already talked about Minari and Nine Days. That's all I got. Okay. <laughs> you have anything you wanna you wanna add to your Sundance experience before you log off? I mean, people can find the interviews you've done as well. They'll, they'll be coming out soon. And, and the roundtables. Oh, there's one more I should mention, which would be a good toss to what's coming, which is Omniboat, a fast boat Fantasia. So this is, uh, we have a podcast coming in the days immediately to follow. This is an omnibus film with 15 different filmmakers, including a lot of recognizable names. But one of the great things that I'm looking forward to about releasing the podcast is it was originally based... The, the film opens with a credit based on a PDF by Lucas Leva. And <laughs> obviously, I've never seen that opening credit before. <laughs> so the PDF is bananas. And I was able to get them to send it to us. So we're going to publish that on No Film School with oh, the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. And the PDF is all about how they wanted to hang out on a boat. And they, with independent film investment not being particularly lucrative, why not buy a boat? instead or in addition to a film so anyway this this pdf will be on the website and they offered up their film for acquisition at the premiere as well as the speedboat that is in the movie throughout (laughs) so it's it's a really you know the the pdf itself is like the tone of the movie and it's completely gonzo and uh so we're going to release that podcast soon and then you know make sure to tune in for the 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 gonzo pdf to go with it cool and with that See you guys. He bows it's been out. A, it's been a great Sundance. There have been so many great movies here. And if you hear otherwise, don't believe it. <laughs> All right. Oakley, visuals? Visuals. I mean, to be completely honest, the coolest visually um, innovative stuff I've seen has been in the shorts. Yeah? Absolutely. I mean, I just haven't, you know, I don't know if it's because it's shorter uh, and you're able to do more with less money or less time, but... You know, we did two podcasts, two roundtables with short filmmakers and midnight short filmmakers. And my God, they're doing some really cool things in their shorts where I'm just like, oh, yes, I just want to keep watching this. And the style is definitely probably overshadowed most of the features that I've seen. Nice. Just in, well, I highly, I highly encourage everybody to take a look at those because the shorts are also like there's a couple opportunities with shorts to get involved. There's going to be um, Sundance Ignite, which we're going to have a piece up about. And that application involves a short in the short challenge. And that's coming up in February. And then there's going to be a Kickstarter short month, which we have a piece up about. And that's going to be in March. So there's going <coughs> There's going to be a lot of opportunities for people who want to make shorts to make them and get into these kind of avenues. And the fact that Oakley interviewed all these short filmmakers and you'll be able to hear from all of them about it. And she says they're visually impressive. They really are. Yeah. And I'm just really excited. I'm like, I don't know if this is a fluke or if we just happen to talk to all these people that 
are really doing something interesting, but I'm excited to see you to follow these people's careers because, and to copy their ideas and steal them for myself. <laughs> um, but it was really cool to Great see their work. Steal. Right? I that's I have I, that's basically all I do. Um, <laughs> and also literally, I'm just stealing free candy bars at every free Sundance <laughs> stop I can. Um, Oakley, <laughs> the pilferer. <laughs> yes, I would probably steal the toilet paper if I wasn't leaving early. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and. In terms of features, something some features have already been mentioned that I thought looked cool, but I'll mention another one, La Leyenda Negra. Oh, yeah. Yes, I've heard a lot about this. This is a very DIY, too. Yeah, right? so that's the director's first feature, and she's also working with first-time non-actors who are teenagers. Nice. And it's in black and white. Wow. What could go wrong? Not um, it could be not on film. No, yeah, that, would be, that would be, <laughs> that would be too cool. far. They want to do, but everyone wants to. And, yeah. Um, and something about it just really works as a story. And one thing that I was able to interview her a little about the process. And one thing that was cool that I thought that's a great takeaway, especially dealing with being new in so many areas and shooting in black and white. Well, I guess the black and white just happened to look great and interesting. What she did is she didn't um, storyboard. She literally shot the film just with a little tiny handheld camera wow. with her actors and then edited it, and then sent that to the DP. So they didn't have a storyboard. They had, like, the whole film they shot ahead of time. That's like, the what, rehearsal. Uh, shot it. Essentially, what, the rehearsal Roger, was shot. That's part of what Roger Deakins did on 1917, uh, which you can find that interview, what I did with him on No Film School. But, um, yeah, I think more and more people are doing that. And, you know, uh, Orson Welles says, you can't make a good movie if it's not black and white. <laughs> <laughs> or said. I guess he's not with us anymore. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'm always down for black and white people are doing it I'm yeah excited. if they do it right and yeah i'm always surprised because sometimes you associate black and white film with a certain tone for some uh -huh. reason i don't know why but you think that way and every time i see a good black and white i'm like oh my god black and white can be this way and black and white can be that way and you kind of forget that oh, living in a color world every genre it, it that used to existed. be every yeah. genre in exactly fact, yeah black and white isn't doesn't need to be noir or raging bull or anything it can just be a choice that changes the palette and the look um, I, you know, visually didn't have anything that really, like, I, I wanted to hear from everyone else. I saw a few good things and I mentioned some of them, but I also notice, I do feel like there continue to be, even in the movies that have unique perspective, indie movie tropes that I'm getting to the point, you know, to some extent where I'm a little bit like, I think we should stop doing these. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not like, I'm not king of indie movies, but sometimes I see them and I'm like, I feel like we should generally, like, there's a lot of indie movies that seem to start especially Sundance movies with like this is this character's daily routine <laughs> and I was like why is this still the way like I'd like to see people break format a little bit more and I also noticed art direction wise and production design wise that I see certain things that feel like they're becoming kind of familiar patterns in terms of like the way people are costumed almost and the way that there's like kind of like a flat makeup style. And I think sometimes it's an effort to dress things down, to de-emphasize the movie dumb of them. But I'm curious about it because I didn't see as much, I think, certainly as Ryan, but as you guys. And I just wonder if there are thoughts on that or maybe counterpoints to it. But I just felt like even in Downhill, which isn't indie really, but I still felt like it was like they're fitting into this certain um, rhythm and style and pacing that it's I mean, it sounds like Zola's totally blows that open, you know, and like black and white, of course. So I'm sure there are plenty of exceptions, but I do feel like there's a certain 
it's almost becoming like there's genre conventions to a Sundance movie in some filmmakers' minds, and and I'd like to see, I'd like to hear if people also experience that. I've seen that more in previous years. Um, granted, I didn't see a ton of very typical Sundance fare this year. I kind of tried to seek That's out. Good. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it it might have been because I didn't see those movies, yeah. you know, so I yeah. don't want to say definitively. You put them on my list, <laughs> and you took them off your list, so that's what I'm realizing. Perhaps okay, that's that cool. No, that's cool. <laughs> Busted. We have a list yeah. of things we're trying to yeah, cover. Yeah, we, we made an to. effort to split up so we could try to cover for everybody all the different kinds of things because there's so much I think I hope we did a good job of it this year the idea is that there's so much at Sundance it's kind of impossible to see everything but as Ryan has mentioned a few times as well you could come and see a few things that only fit in one of the boxes here and be like Sundance is just this and I that's kind of what I was saying I was trying to say like did everybody find enough variety that they could say like Sundance is not just this Sundance is all these different things. Cause I think it's important also to represent that to people on the outside that you may, there's a lot of different things happening here that don't fit into the same boxes. Right. Oh yeah. I'm trying to think of what to say to that, but I haven't seen as many narratives as I've seen docs and yeah. the narratives I have seen have been sort of not super conventional in some of those ways. Like, I mentioned on the last podcast, Summertime, yeah. which is like a vignette the whole way through. It was based on spoken word. So, you know, they're kind of – I haven't seen a lot of narratives, although I have in the past, like Emily said, where these conventions are there. And I'm trying to think there are similar things ha that happen in documentary where you're like, right. okay, I'm, we're cutting away to the graphic and the dramatic music comes on. Yeah. Like there's certain conventions <laughs> – I don't know if they're necessarily bad. You know, I, the, the, no, I'm not making a judgment per se. I mean, it sounds like I am. I think what I'm saying is like, I like to be, and especially at a film festival, I think we all like to be surprised a little bit and we like to see people pushing things. And I think that, um, you know, I want to see if people, what, I think we've talked a little bit about a few of those things that were like, I've never seen somebody do that before. It sounds like Zola was definitely one of those. But I want to know more about people who can highlight things for us that are like, hey, for what for the rest of the world, when this if and when this becomes available, this is one of those things that that tests the boundaries and that does things cinematically that you don't see other places. Because, you know, going back to like our our prior roundtable podcast about the business side a little bit, because the room in the mainstream for a drama has shrunk, that it, the festivals sometimes are the place where drama featured length drama exists it's not like a main it's not in multiplexes as much anymore so that's kind of like what i'm talking about and i i just feel like who saw did you guys see stuff that you felt like pushed the boundaries a lot i i do think that i talked about this this film last time on the podcast surely by josephine decker but she she's pushed the boundaries in a similar way in her previous films um but i do think that she's utterly singular like her version of making a film is nobody nobody else's it's not derivative um it's totally manic it's really hyper and exciting and um ev all of the elements combine to make this really you know almost stressful experience not in a safety brothers kind of way but because what's happening on screen isn't necessarily stressful but what what is um you know the subjectivity of the characters and and what is happening to them inside is being depicted on screen that's cool Okay, everybody, we're going to turn back the clock now to a prior point in the podcast, and we're talking about acquisitions. So 
a lot of big deals have already closed yeah. here. And interestingly, it was very quiet for the first three days of the festival, which is not normal. So I think everyone was kind of concerned um, about how that might pan out in the long term. But in the past two or th- three days now, I guess how long have we been here? I, we've been here for, for years. It feels like Time a passes time. differently here. <laughs> yeah. It's like Inception. Or no, not Inception. Sorry. The other movie where Matthew McConaughey is in space. <laughs> you know the meme where he's like, it's every second is an hour here? It's been a lot. We've been here a long time. We've it, Yeah. But the point is, yes, the first weekend's crazy. And that whole idea of the bidding wars in the theaters wasn't really happening. And the big deals weren't happening. But... Now things are are happening in a big way. And this is something that I'm going to write a more analytical piece about with some reporting from the ground on with talking to buyers. um, And you can read that eventually. But um, one thing that I've noticed about the deals this year is that there's um, last year it was a lot of people were concerned about the theatrical versus streaming situation. A lot of filmmakers did not want to give their um, their film over to um, a streaming service. For example, the farewell director, Lulu, Lulu Wang, she got um, an offer that was significantly higher than what she ultimately went with, which was A24. Um, she went with A24 because she thought they were going to give her a really good theatrical release. And the other offer apparently was more of a streaming platform. But it was deal. more lucrative. But it was more platform. lucrative. Yeah. So she. Well, and- look, this is a, this is just a microcosm of a major issue we're seeing across the industry the last few years, which is like streaming the Netflix and the Irishman and like, where do you want to be and where a movie supposed to be seen and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a lot going on there. But so, the idea being there's like the hybrid deal now. Right. So the course correction this year is that I think that streaming platforms and theatrical distributors are realizing that they have something to be gained by working together rather than competing directly, um, especially at Sundance. So there have been a couple pretty high profile buys in that model. One of them is um, Neon and Hulu, which bought Palm Springs for $15 million dollars. 68 more cents than the record of Sundance buys, which obviously... I thought it was 69 cents. Oh, I think it was 69. Wow, that is a real... <laughs> then we have to make the nice joke. <laughs> wow, well, I was trying to avoid... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Emily didn't want to go there. I think what... So um, we're definitely going to have content with some of the Palm Springs creators, and we uh, we have a, we'll, we'll have a post coming that's an interview... We also had one of the editors here talking yeah, to Oakley. Matt Friedman, who edited uh, The Farewell as well, edited Palm Springs. And he was here talking this morning on the editor's roundtable. And he talks a little bit – he got – he talks a little about how he got involved in the project. So definitely check out yeah. the Editor's Roundtable podcast. That's actually my favorite podcast of the nice. whole fest. Yeah. I mean, we. I hope, I think we have a lot of post-production people. But back to the acquisitions side of this. Um, yeah. Just like, I mean, yeah, there's inflation. M- numbers go up. But the biggest deal ever. That's a big deal. It is. <laughs> and I think it's just funny how tongue-in-cheek they were being about. Like, oh, this is the biggest deal ever. <laughs> but By well, sense. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I mean, it's it's a it's. I think it's worthwhile to point out to filmmakers everywhere at every level. I know you're not think you know winning the lottery like five times over getting the biggest deal Sundance. But the point being, there's still a lot of money being thrown around. Does this mean that like Hulu is a bigger player in this year's fest than in past years? Because they also they brought the Hillary Doc. Good point. So I don't recall Hulu, you know, being a huge player before. Hulu. What's their deal? Belongs to Disney. So are they changing course because of that? <laughs> well, there may just be deeper pockets, ultimately. Uh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> okay, 
I mean, there was a time, you know, like but a hey, while Fox, ago when Hulu was like, people, Hulu's buying stuff. They yeah, need stuff. But yeah. it well, was last small. year, Apple bought stuff. Amazon buys stuff. Apple bought, um, Apple and A24 was another hybrid acquisition. Um, they bought Boy State for, I believe, $12 million. Yes. Um, and A24 has has had uh, hybrid deals before. They also are here selling films, which I think is a really interesting model as well. Yeah, there's a little bit of a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're really just in all all layers of the game. Wasn't our joke last year that it was like the A24 festival? Mm-hmm. I mean, this year feels le- definitely less so, but they are a big presence here. This they really is becoming are. their business model is movies coming out of here and movies that they bring here. And uh, I think it's just worth pointing out that a lot of money is still exchanging hands on movies here. So, you know, I mean, I, I guess that's not a huge surprise, maybe. But I think that um, the business models in the industry are changing so rapidly and so dramatically that it's worth pointing out that there's, like you said, a course correction. And was that a dock? There was a yeah. Boy State. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. a big dock purchase. There is. Yeah. And even docks that are getting s- relatively smaller purchases, like, for example, the Truffle Hunters got bought by Sony Pictures Classics for $1.5 That's more like of a traditional Sundance sun. Um, you know, there probably wasn't a bidding war. Is it a theatrical as well? Yes. Yeah. So, um, but that's, I think, really awesome. I mean, it's good that the lower end of the market is still healthy, too, because you don't want this, you know, huge yeah. discrepancy between kind these of inflated like, yeah. prices. I think it's also cool that um, – they're they're working in these theatricals because they're seeing that like look the reality is the theatrical is not where the money is made so that's why those offers are going to be lower and for some of these movies they're going to be less existent and for those of us on the uh, in another part of the industry we know that if you sell a movie to a distributor it's really for streaming platforms around the world it's not for or cable sometimes or like uh, pvod but it's not going to be for a theatrical release um, but it's cool to know that there are uh, efforts at the high level, but hopefully at other levels too, to be like, yeah, we want to get a movie in theaters a little bit too. And the filmmakers may drive some of that because if people like Lulu Wang don't want to take a deal that's more money because they really want their movie in a theater, that, that affects the rest of us. For sure. I was talking to my friend um, who works in acquisitions at Netflix last night, and she was reminding me that um, Uncut Gems, which we all think about as a theatrical film, it had a great theatrical release. You know, um, it was Christmas. Very- <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and we think about it as an A twenty four film because that's what it was. Um, but Netflix actually owns the international rights to that film, Whoa. so everyone else in the world sees it as a Netflix film. Was it an? So is it streaming internationally? Not yet, but oh, it will okay. be. And does was Netflix? Do you know if Netflix was involved on that movie from the beginning? I doubt it, that's but interesting. I will find out. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, that movie is a really interesting model just because it has a huge star who's associ- who's got a big deal with Netflix or has, and there's a funny side thing, which is like people were watching it because of the star and then totally terrified because it's not an Adam Sandler movie in the traditional sense. But it's weird that that's like, you know, one of the ways that filmmakers who aren't having their projects seen as much get their projects seen with the big star, you know, all of that. Maybe that's a Sundance trope. Like actors well known for a certain thing come to do their indie role. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's, (laughs) I mean, but it's also like we talked about a little bit last time, how Sundance can only support things that nobody's heard of 
with with filmmakers who are new trying different things because there's it's like what's going to wag the dog so to speak it's going to be that there's something with Will Ferrell so like it, it there is an important symbiotic relationship between why like high level things or high um I shouldn't say high level high budget things with big names and faces that like help us help them support the rest of the infrastructure yeah. you know and Will Ferrell gets to act in a way that some people aren't used to seeing him and then you know that's I, also I would say like I don't know if you guys had this experience with any anything you saw but for me like Richard Jenkins is a great actor and it's really fun to see him in a movie where he gets to really dig in like uh the last shift and do this big performance and this big character this great piece that you know he's not leading he's not going to get those parts those parts are you know out in the mainstream necessarily but this is just a cool like I, I don't know I love that there's that place for them to do things and stars are really important like great actors are important to movies like Alison Brie in this uh horse girl is another like she gets a chance in Aubrey Plaza in Black Bear you get a chance to see really talented people who are known for only doing certain things do things that you didn't know they could do, but they're actors, so and it's fun to see that. Did you like Black Bear, by the way? Um, yeah, I did. I interviewed Lawrence Michael Levine, and that's that's live. I actually interviewed him in an Uber, which was fun and weird and different. <laughs> that but is so Sundance. Yeah, it was just like I was like, "Hey, man, I'm along for the ride. Let's do literally, let's do this." Like it was like he didn't have time, and we had to get to his next screening, and we had a lot of fun. Um, it's a very interesting movie, and he was really clear with me. He did not want us to spoil some of what happens because it takes a major it does things that are completely unexpected and that's fun to see um it's about filmmakers it's about creative people in in a variety of ways of an actress who makes movies and a musician and like it's got a very um unique perspective on how relationships can or can't work within the context of trying to be creative. And I know in our community, so this is in the piece I wrote, but we have a lot of people sometimes who ask, like, how do you, and I've seen it on Reddit, like, how do you have a relationship in and pursue these things? Because it's really not easy. And I think the movie talks about that in a really interesting kind of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf style way. And when I mentioned that movie, he was like, yes, I love that movie. So it's like, if that's kind of your thing, then you'd be really into it. Um, it's just cool to see an actress like Aubrey Plaza too, be put in a position where she does stuff that, you know, she has her thing. She does really well that we've seen before and she gets to do that here, but she also gets to do all this other stuff. Same with Alison Brie, same with a lot of these, like same with Will Ferrell, I would say. Right. So I think that's kind of like, if you want to find the silver lining to the star, side of Sundance that's what it is is like you can come to Sundance and see movies with stars or at least character actors that put them in new places yeah you know? they get to get outside of the box they've been placed in yeah yeah that's true thanks everyone who's listened to our Sundance coverage from Sundance uh, on no film school uh, please like and subscribe to the podcast comment uh, let us know what you're into and um, check back because there's going to be a ton of other content from Sundance interviews with a lot of the filmmakers we've been talking about a lot of the films we've talked about we're going to cover it in print on nofilmschool.com so you can see it there we're also going to have a lot of really cool interviews with all of these people um and irrespective of whether or not you see these movies i think there's a lot you can get out of these roundtables and these interviews and this content so we're really excited about it and we hope you enjoyed our coverage this year and uh thanks so much yeah watch out the barrage is coming 
Yeah, it's all there. There's it's stuff's already there for you to look at. Yeah. 